The following production is part of the We Be Geeks Podcast Collective. This podcast is brought to you in part by the Pop Insider. The Pop Insider has all the latest in news, merch reviews, and other geeky goodness. Whether you're a wizard, a Sith Lord, or a superhero, fuel your fandom at thepopinsider.com. Microphones and headphones provided by CAD Audio. CAD Audio, expression through innovation. Produced with podcasting gear from Tascam. Trust your audio to Tascam. Sound thinking. Mm-hmm. Dark Welcome to another episode of Wookiee Radio. Uh, apparently, I was the only one who heard the theme song. <laughs> um, yep. So that tells yeah. me. Well, I'm not wearing cans. So. <laughs> that, that tells me something else. Um, anyway, it is the, intru- the Smugglers 3, Derek, Ken, and myself, Mike. And that other voice you heard that did not sound like the three of us is he is known for many award shows many variety shows and of course in our case he is known as the writer of the star wars holiday special it's bruce valanche co-writer we have to to spread the manure around (laughs) how's everyone doing Uh, i'm moderate to heavy how are you (laughs) (laughs) not bad this is a a new new one for us as well um, cause we are using zoom for the first time to record our show. So my fault, yeah, it's not, no. it, it was my bound fault. to happen. Um, you're, you're dragging us, kicking and screaming into the present. That's right. <laughs> not even the future. We're, we're boldly going where 12 year olds have gone. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Um, so before we hit the holiday special, are there any current projects you're working on that you want to talk about? We I've got nothing to plug. You know, okay. we're in the middle of this pandemic and so everything is shut down. So, I mean, today, the Bold of the Beautiful started shooting, allegedly. They were supposed to shoot. They called everybody, and I don't know if they actually got anything in the can because the, uh, under the new protocols, uh, they take your temperature when you show up. And if somebody has a temperature, they have to send them home, which could shut them down. If depending on who they are. If it's one of the lead actors, it's, you know, it's ball game. So I don't know if they actually got anything done. However, today was day one of the first production to go back since okay. March. Okay. Now, um, so I have that long-winded answer means I have nothing to plug because nothing is, uh, everything is in the can, nothing is scheduled. I'm in development. I've been, I've been writing. I've been doing a lot of writing. So, but the moment I have something to plug, I will come back. And certainly if it's, uh, if it's uh, Lucas, uh, Star Wars related, if it's in, the, in, the, in your universe, 
But so, people want to just pick over the ashes of the Star Wars holiday special, which refuses to die, and which I keep telling people, if we had known 40 years ago that we would be talking about it, we would have paid closer attention. But we, we were so chemically altered during most of it that, uh, you know, at, at the old joke goes, anybody who, who remembers it wasn't, wasn't there. <laughs> so how, how did the whole concept of the holiday special come about? Well, uh, George had was about to do The Empire Strikes Back. He had uh, this, and Star Wars hadn't become, it was a phenomenon, but it wasn't a kind of legacy thing yet because there had just been the one movie. And it was basically, it was like the first blockbuster after Jaws. And, uh, uh, but unlike Jaws, where they cranked out sequels, this was, George's vision was to have a whole string uh, uh, an empire of movies. And so he wanted to prime the pump to make sure that the public was still uh, on his page to, to, to whet their appetite for The Empire Strikes Back. And uh, so he um, he had 10 stories, he told me, and he was going to make six movies. That was his plan. And he had the four other ideas that he had, he sold off. One of them was Bubba Fett, uh, which wound up being a, a short animated portion of the special and then lived on, had its own life after that. And then there was one he sold to a... Uh, um, became a novel and another one i forget what happened to that one but the the last story he went to cbs and he sold it as a variety show and uh there are two things that have to be noted one was that george really had no concept of what a variety show was like i don't think he watched them <laughs> uh, and back in the 70s uh, before cable there was a lot of there was carol burnett there was dean martin there was mac davis there was sunny and Cher. there were variety shows on every night and mm -hmm. they were one more ridiculous than the other i mean they would i would i kind of specialized at the, in writing specials that were insane wayne Newton at SeaWorld, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> and um, a lot of really, really contrived things. And he had no idea that when he sold them this idea that it, it would turn into something like that. Uh, and by the time it, it did, it was too late. He couldn't get out of it. So he had to, well, all he could do was basically leave town and disown it, which he did. Um, and <laughs> well, he certainly that's did. the first thing. And, and of course, the second thing is that, uh, well, there were three things. The second thing is that uh, it, it was a respectable, it got good numbers and the reviews were not that terrible. And we thought, okay, that's, that's over. It's done. And then the internet came along and a whole generation of kids who had watched the first three Star Wars movies on VHS suddenly discovered there was this thing that they didn't know it ever existed. And they found it on the internet <laughs> and they were appalled and betrayed. And he started getting death threats from them. And so he began like trying to stomp it out. He was going to buy up every copy, but you know, it can't be done. So it continues to flourish. And it has managed with every new star Wars movie, there is a, re a renaissance of interest in it. Uh, and the third important thing to remember is that the story that he sold to CBS starred the Wookiees. And as you know, the Wookiees speak no known language right. in this or any other universe. And when they do speak, they sound like fat people having orgasms. <laughs> Trust me, I know. 
and, and we, had, we had to write for these characters, and they uh, they were all we we had that we and we couldn't use subtitles because back then they felt that the audience that was going to watch the show would not put up with subtitles. Subtitles were still sort of an early uh, concept. Now, of course, the, the irony is uh, the of the last three, or, you know, Rogue One, and all this, this this crop of Star Wars movies are loaded with subtitles because people are speaking Ewok and Klingon, or well, that's the other thing, but they're speaking all kinds of languages and the audience is totally comfortable not only that but because of streaming which offers a subtitle option a lot of people just use subtitles because they can make out they can read because they can't make out a lot of what people are saying because a lot of of creatures mumble so uh at the time (laughs) we did not have the uh, subtitle option uh so we had to have characters who i called morris the explainer we had to have art carney come in as a an intergalactic Tupperware salesman to explain the plot in conversation with Mrs. Wookie, with Mrs. Chewbacca. And, uh, uh, and that made everything incredibly awkward. But, you know, uh, this, these are things that, as I said, George had George done a little bit of spade work before he made the deal, would have realized what were going to happen. But uh, that, this was not his universe. And he, he, I mean, he got a nice piece of change for doing it, but more important to him that he keeps, he keeps Star Wars current until the Empire was in the marketplace there have i answered all your questions no actually oh, <laughs> not by a long shot <laughs> <laughs> oh good <laughs> I'm really testing the old brain cells so derek why don't you go next okay let's oh. see how 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 can i put this um <laughs> sorry let me put it this way okay now let me put it that way <laughs> <laughs> um how just how, <laughs> how did you how did you get how did all of you how did you guys come up with that with the whole thing basically yeah, where'd the story come from george okay it was one of the 10 stories i mean at one point i think he he thought he might make this into a movie but because he wanted to give the Wookiees uh, some some fair shake, but and he was fascinated. He'd come up with Wookiees, and so he wanted to see what he could do with them. But it was his story. Uh, he invented this holiday, Life Day, which he thought would be like Festivus for the rest of us, but of course not so much. <laughs> and uh, uh, and and he came up with the story. The story was Chewbacca had to get home to to the, the Wookiee planet. Uh, for Life Day, and they were being chased in the Millennium Falcon, he and Leia and uh, Han Solo, by Imperial Star Troopers, and they had to get home. And uh, the, uh, the, they, uh, and while we were following their progress, he George had also invented, uh, he hadn't really, but he had come up with the idea of a virtual reality helmet that, that you put on and it would kind of plug into your brain and, and bit, you could visualize your fantasies. It would, it would find your fantasies and make them come to life. And so the numbers, whatever was, each character would wear this helmet and have some kind of a fantasy. So the little kid, uh, Chewy, Frosty, whatever we called him, I forget what his name was. Uh, uh, his uh, fantasy lumpy wound up, what was it lumpy lumpy that's it lumpy yeah lumpy lumpy's fantasy was Cirque du Soleil who had never been on television before and <laughs> they, did, they did a number um the grandpa the silverback <laughs> Wookiee his fantasy was Cher <laughs> uh but she couldn't do it because she just had her boobs done 
so she was not going to uh, appear mm. in there. So Diane Carroll wound up doing it. So she was actually the first interracial, interspecies love interest ever on television. So where's my NAACP award is what I want to <laughs> And so, so would Diane. So does Diane, by the way. We, we talked it for 40 years. We'd go out there and we'd talk about this show. Uh, well, we've mentioned it in passing, like because nothing had changed except more people would get outraged by it, and we would get more more angry email about how could you do this. Uh, and then uh, Mrs. Chewbacca, I don't know that she wore the helmet, but uh, we had her at home on the planet watching uh, 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 Harvey Corman as the Julia Child of uh, of outer space. Ah, yes, yeah. with seven arms, making things. Um, anyway, so that was uh, that was a way we we could get in other. Uh, talent into the show and uh, also to plug things that were happening on the network. I mean, uh, Harvey was on the Burnett show and um, Cher, of course, had her show. And uh, um, and, and then we uh, one uh, one of the flashbacks, one of the, the other elements was they stopped uh, the Mendelian Falcon stopped on Tatooine to refuel and they went to the cantina. Uh-huh. And uh, so that was we, we could put a number in there. And that was B. Arthur. Uh, uh, we we wanted <laughs> The, the cantina to be run by a very by a stern woman, so it was B in her Statue of Liberty period, and she was going to run the place. And she did this number with aliens, and and she wanted it to be very Brechtian. In fact, she brought in a Brecht number, where by Brecht and Vile said, "This is my Brecht Vile." I said, "It's, it's your Vile Brecht, is what it is." <laughs> And of course, we had to go to Berthold Breckman. <laughs> asked them if they, and they said no. He did not write the song, so she should sing the thing with puppets. So that didn't happen. So Ken and Missy Welch, who were writers from the Burnett Show, wrote uh, uh, a, a, a very Brechtian number for her to sing with the aliens who kept fainting from the heat as, as we were shooting it over and over and over. Wow. So, mm. uh, so how did it all happen? Well, it started with George, and we were we were writing to his outline. And somewhere in there, he uh, he realized what was happening and fled. I think he realized it when he handpicked the director, who was a very very talented guy named Doug Akumba, who uh, uh, had come was was out of Toronto and had come had done some wonderful stuff up there, but had never done anything like this. Had never done uh, a network show for an American network, and came down and. We're shooting it like it was a movie, and this was not how it was it was uh, meant to be done, and it would never have been finished on the budget we had if he had been allowed to do that. And he was George's pick, and the network said he has to go, and they fired him and brought in a guy who had, who had done the Elvis uh, Elvis Honolulu special and the Elvis the big Elvis comeback special, right. and uh, Steve yeah. Binder, who's terrific, and wound up doing Pee Wee's Playhouse for years, and, and is really good, but you know was was working in the conventional style of the day for the network. And George just was having none of that. I mean, he was back in Marin, you know, plotting Jabba the Hutt, which I, I basically told him I should play. But <laughs> fate intervened. <laughs> he, found, he found a younger Hutt. <laughs> well, you know, it go, that's how it goes sometimes. Mm-hmm. It goes like it goes. But, uh, There's a song from Norma Ray that won the Oscar that no one knows. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, I wrote twenty three Oscar shows. I know. All. <laughs> so, so then my next question is: since it it was between Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back, still in the early days of all of this, uh-huh. how 
was it just God? You like, sound so pained when you ask these questions. <laughs> I'm, try, I'm like trying I'm to think understand, it. it's like show me where the man touched you. <laughs> That'll come later. <laughs> um, no, was it, so? Was it was it like confusing or weird or you know everything like what was in George's outline and everything? Because it was all still so new, was it just just weird to you, or well, it wasn't it weird to you? Yeah, uh, it was weird because he, well, yeah, I know, but we were doing it was not it was not a conventional show, and uh, we wanted to honor his his intent to do something that was that was really different, but it just kept getting dragged into the variety show mill. Mm. that that was uh, operating in those days and uh and as i say i don't think he had no idea if this was what was going to happen but i think that everybody on the other side on the on the cbs side assumed that he knew what he was getting into and that he would be complicit with all of this <laughs> and, and no he wasn't he wasn't at all but it was a big investment and uh and as i say you know he he uh at a certain point, the uh, sales of the action figures began to drop, and you know he, it, the whole thing needed a little goose. Yeah, and he was concerned because he hadn't even started shooting and he, Empire yet, which he wasn't directing. Uh, but so he was uh, involved in developing uh, and supervising these two things at the same time, and it was clear that this was just not not his milieu. So at the time, I mean, yeah, we thought it was really weird, but we were really stoned. You know, I mean, <laughs> it was nineteen. 1977, Carrie, Carrie Fisher and I, well, we were snorting the sweet and low in the coffee shop. I mean, oh, it, sure. yeah, I mean, it was, everybody was kind of going, wow, that's trippy. Maybe it'll work. <laughs> Who knew? You know, and, and maybe it won't. <laughs> I, I remember watching it live, um, which uh, of the three of of the three of us, I think I was the only one really able to remember watching it live. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I was able to watch it live. I don't remember it. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. It? I was, I was, I don't know if I actually watched it live. But well, I was, were you alive? I was, I was alive. Oh, yes. Yeah. 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 I was, I was uh, three or four years old. So I, I was, I was seven. Yeah, we were too young. <laughs> I was seven. So, so I, I, I remember the next day it was, it was the talk of the playground. Oh, let's recreate this. Let's do this. And, and mm-hmm. the biggest thing we were hoping for was the uh, Chewbacca's family. Like Chewbacca's got a family. When are those action figures coming out? When's his home playset coming out? Um, yeah, I wondered that too. I kind of thought, but I, uh, maybe it was like, uh, it, 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 it wasn't on enough. I mean, if it had been on a series or if it, had been a, something that streams like like Baby Yoda was an instant action figure right. through the roof. But that's because you can stream Baby Yoda. I mean, and the people were streaming it every Mandalorian every day, and and mm-hmm. they dropped all seven of the of the first season. You know, so people could go crazy over Baby Yoda. Uh, we were on one night. It was Friday night of Thanksgiving weekend. Yep. So. Yep. Uh, I don't think, unless there had been a rush to the, if they had plotted it and they, you know, and they had something in the Macy's parade or something, uh, they may have. I don't even remember. Well, then I, they they might have gotten more of a, they might have gotten a, a bump with people wanting to buy a lumpy and all that. But you know, uh, I know there were prototypes in made. The Star Wars movie, right? They were just on that one-off. So 
I know there were there were figures prototyped for the family. I'm sure there were. <laughs> so if I, if I saw them, I forget. But uh, yeah, well, it's interesting because you said how um, everybody like has found this on YouTube and stuff. But actually, the first time I saw it was right here. I actually yeah, have it on was DVD. A, was that an I, official DVD? Was that uh, no. <laughs> no, this is a flea market DVD, but I yeah, still have yeah. one. <laughs> well, I think what people bootlegged and conventions. People, yeah, people, people posted it on the internet. Other people bootlegged it and sold yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. And, and yeah, so it was around. But um, now the all the wiki stuff in there is a whole lot of um, lore for Star Wars. How much of that was actually in the notes and stuff you got from George, and how much of that did you guys come up with? Actually, like the Wookiee planet, what it would look like, and um, the interactions between the Wookiees and things. That was all George. Uh, we wrote to a very specific outline which i wish i kept I, I i think i did but i think it was it got lost in a flood a long time ago <laughs> oh wow. um but it was all very specific i mean uh he wouldn't leave that to any of us to yeah. come up with so all the characters yeah. things that happened to them um not not so much not specific dialogue that we we wrote uh but uh the the idea of the wookie planet being sort of like treetops in kenya where everybody lives in in they're all in the houses built high in the trees, and uh, which is interesting because they're huge. How do they get to them? They're all, you know, Chewbacca looks like Sasquatch. How does he climb a tree? Uh, but they were, uh, that was all, it was all pretty specific from him. Okay. How did y'all decide, how did y'all decide what acts or what talent to bring in? Um because I know working here at Epcot, I've always joked when Starship comes to perform at our our main stage for oh Starship was on that's right yeah. uh, for the for the spring and the fall shows, we'll just have that playing in the background on a loop in their dressing room. Yep. See what type yeah. of flashbacks that brings back. Um, Are any of them? From the original group anymore? Uh, it's Mickey. It's Mickey Thomas, but yeah. um, from what we were watching, Mickey Thomas was not he on that performance. He wasn't doing the performance at that time. Was he in Starship then, or was he in like Foreigner or some other? Um, I thought he came late to that thing. It was Marty Ballon and Grace Slick, yeah, and uh, Paul Kantner. And I forget who else. Um, but that was, I mean, they were the airplane. And then they right. became stars. Um, but, uh, the, you know, they were in and out. They were, it was very quick. And they were basically isolated from everything else because uh, the, they were on a green screen set, as I recall. And things were projected around them. And they did their number and that was it. And then uh, there was some, it wasn't called CGI then, but it was uh, some special effects that were made. So the, I think it was, so it was like a virtual helmet performance. I think that was the idea. Um, I forget whose fantasy it was. Maybe Chewbacca's himself. Uh, <laughs> but um, they were, the, those bookings were not George. Those were the network they wanted. Uh, uh, not Starship specifically, but they wanted a big rock act. And uh, they wanted a big glamour girl uh, who, I mean, they wanted Cher because she was right. also a network star. And uh, and for the comedy, they wanted people who uh, who have been, uh, who were television people, Art Carney and uh, Harvey Korman. And, uh, and then Cirque du Soleil was actually Dave, uh, David Okumba's idea. He'd worked with them in uh, Canada and they had not done anything. I mean, they had, they, I, I'm not even sure if they had come down to LA and had had their first big splash 
maybe it happened after that or it may have been happening right around that. Yeah. I didn't so, even know they've been back that far. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know uh, yeah. They, they've been around a while, but they were much, much smaller, you know? Right. Yeah. They, they grew into this empire. Gigantic. So they didn't have four Vegas shows running all at once at the same time back then. <laughs> they, had, they had one, one show in a tent, which they, they trooped. They set up in a parking lot at the Santa Monica pier. It was a pup and tent. That was what was, what was the, re- the reason that they were so such a hit or out, right out of the park was that um, they they were the first circus that anybody had seen in America that had no animal acts. And all of the soccer moms who said, those circuses are full of animal cruelty and I don't want to expose my child. But here's a circus, which is just people doing jaw-dropping acrobatics. Let's go to that. And it was in a tent and there was popcorn and there were all those French-Canadian clowns running around going, eh! And everybody, that's their specialité. Uh, And so it was was different from every other kind of thing, from Ringling Brothers and Circus Vargas and Clyde Beatty and all the other circuses that were around. So it immediately was the hip thing to see and and the hip thing to take your kids to see because it was cruelty-free. And so it it developed. After they had developed the brand and they were touring with the tents and all that, uh, Vegas Vegas took a left (laughs) uh, in one of its many reinventions, Vegas became a family resort and they brought in Cirque du Soleil and it, it dovetailed with uh, what happened. This is not about Star Wars at all. So do you want me to go on? Oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah keep going. Uh, oh, what oh, happened yeah. was um, uh, the mob was forced out of Vegas as owners and there were multinationals bought the casinos and the mob ran the casinos underground. They were the guys behind the actual casinos. But the resorts were run by multinationals and the multinationals, unlike the mob, the multinationals did not view the showrooms in Vegas as loss leaders. The mob would bring in Frank Sinatra and you could see him for $10. That's because when Frank Sinatra finished, you walked out into a casino and every table was open and they knew you would spend hundreds more on the gambling because you've been sitting in there drinking, watching Sinatra and having a good time. So the showroom didn't have to show a profit. And when the multinationals came in, suddenly the showrooms had to show a profit. So if you were going to pay somebody half a million dollars a week, you had to charge the audience to make that nut back and and make a profit. And there weren't many people who could draw that. There weren't many genuine headliners who people would pay that money to see. But if you installed the Cirque show, you could spend that money and amortize it over 10 years. So you would know exactly how much you were making every week and you'd make a profit. And the showroom would show a profit. And it would also deliver people into the casino. And that has been basically the way Vegas has been working for the last 30 years. Except that the family resort <laughs> thing never really ha- never really panned out. And so they took another turn and it became what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Come here and bring your bachelor party here and then uh, and then and recreations of the rat pack <laughs> and now in fact in in vegas the nightclubs are bigger income earners than the showroom because people will go and they will spend thousands of dollars on a bottle of champagne at a nightclub and, and to pretend they danced with Beyonce. <laughs> they'll have a girl who looks like Beyonce running around. People go, oh my God, it's Beyonce, and they'll dance with her. 
and and the DJs are the biggest stars in Vegas. Now yeah, because people actually follow them. Anyway, that's Vegas 101, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I didn't take us away from Tatooine and Alderaan and all the important places. Well, I'll, I'll bring us back with a, a listener question. Uh, Ryan McGuire wants to know what was your favorite part of the holiday special? My favorite part. Oh, yes. My. Well, I, I mean, probably the B. Arthur, probably watching B. <laughs> on the, the aliens. Uh, that was my favorite. I mean, it was because she was having the best time. And um, and they were, it was 123 degrees. And they were passing out and we kept moving aliens closer, you know, around because we, we didn't have that many aliens to spare. So that was fun. Uh, and just other than that, the, uh, when the shoot was happening, that was fun. But we, like, we were in an office for a month developing the thing. And that that was great fun because it was a very inspired group of really, really funny writers. Uh, and we could just throw out these ridiculous ideas. And sometimes they would happen and sometimes they wouldn't. But there was uh, Lenny Rips and Pat Proft and um, uh, Ron Perlman. And they were, I mean, they were just, it was fun to be with all of them. And then uh, when Carrie came in, of course, Carrie was always fun. They were only in for like two days because Harrison wouldn't wouldn't give him more than two days. I think Harrison may have just given him a day. Carrie was going to sing. Carrie wanted to sing. Um, she's always wanted. Oh, yeah. And uh, she had a Joni Mitchell song she wanted to sing. Um, uh, I Wish I Had a River. That's the, the song she wanted to okay. sing. And uh, the, it's kind of a Christmassy song. And she thought it would, it would fit in with Life Day. So I said, that's a great idea. Let's call Joni. So we called Joni and, uh, and Carrie uh, pitched her the idea. And it was Joni Mitchell. There was a pause. And it was one of those... You know, I don't know if you're familiar with Joni Mitchell's work, but she had this very high sort of glissando. And and she started laughing. No. <laughs> that came out loud and clear. No. And to be fair, as I as I've told I told Carrie many times later, she's never said yes to anything. Any nobody Nothing, nothing anybody wants to do with her songs. She doesn't want anybody interested in, in having big, big ass cover versions of her songs. I mean, she likes, she would likes when jazz artists do it, but she wasn't interested in having this on a network television special. So it wasn't like it was, it wasn't Carrie's. But that was fun. Those those days in the office were a lot of fun. Okay. So was Carrie involved in the writing process at all? Because I know she helped with some of the scripts for the actual movies and things. Yeah, uh, she she was. I mean, she can probably contributed a few lines, and uh, I mean, they didn't have that much to say. And uh, um, so I can't tell you specifically, but I'm sure she did because she was hanging around. She liked to do that. She liked to hang around. Um, so so yeah, but you know, I mean, I can't even remember. They they were they were all they were. Uh, um, Peter Mayhew was uh, was uh, was he was Chewbacca, right? Yeah. Yes. He yep. just passed. Yeah. He was there, and uh, uh, Tony Daniel, Anthony Daniel, who was uh, uh, C3PO, mm-hmm. and uh, and of course we had R2, but that was uh, R2. That was yeah. I was going to say that was somebody very small, but what a cheap joke that would. Be. <laughs> I was going to say, was Kenny Baker there actually in the R2, or was it a remote control R2? Uh, no, he was there. Kenny Baker was okay. there. 
they were they all were there. They were there for two days tops. I mean, we had to get it all done, all their stuff done. Okay. And I can't remember who the uh, the 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 Wookies were all like. You know, actors, television actors, and Lumpy was a little person who I knew, and I can't remember. <laughs> Um, and I think that uh, uh, Chewbacca's wife was a little person also. It's hard to tell after when they got into all the makeup and drag. <laughs> so you you went off of George's outline, but is there anything, did you get to put any little thing of your own in there that, that you know? You know, I be- did, and I, uh, honestly, I mean, the Harvey Corman stuff, uh, I wrote that. Oh, I love that. I love the Harvey Corning. Uh, well, he was brilliant, and he was wonderful in this, and it was all—it was very Julia Child was very popular at the time, mm-hmm. and so anything you did as Julia Child was hilarious, you know. And even things like uh, today we're going to make leek soup. All right, let's all take a leak. <laughs> <laughs> Harvey, Harvey made that work so well. Uh, yeah, yeah. The joke was he had like seven arms, so he could cook like nobody. You know, it was like all over the place. <laughs> And I, I, I had a lot of our Tarney stuff, but uh, it was a lot of his stuff was explaining what was happening and, and asking her mm-hmm. questions, asking uh, Mrs. Chewbacca questions, and she would answer, and he would, go, he would have to translate basically for uh, anything that she said or anything any of them said. Grandpa, any of any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And B, I wrote some stuff for B, but uh, she was very deadpan. I mean, her character was like, uh, you know, she was, she was. Uh, like Miss Kitty on Gunsmoke, she was running the saloon. She was, uh, and she, you know, ran it with a tight fist. <laughs> so, <laughs> so she couldn't be very carefree and 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 wise ass. She was very busy uh, giving people looks. And you know, the thing of it is, you you're never going to write a joke as funny as B giving you a look. You know, one of those right. takes or a reaction. Hell yeah! <laughs> Somebody else says something, and B will go. And it's three minutes of laughter from the audience because they know what's coming. They know she's they know she's simmering and she's about to boil. So I found since um, Lumpy was paid was played by Patty Maloney. Who, yes, I thought it was Patty. Who she has played, who has ties to the Orlando area because she lived here in Winter Park. Ah, yes, she did. Well, I think she was a ringling person. Um, and I worked with her on Donnie and Marie and the Brady Bunch variety. I did a lot of varieties. I worked with Sid and Marty Croft a lot on H.R. Puffin stuff, a lot of those 70s varieties. And I knew Patty very well back back in the day. And she was lumpy or she was... Uh, she was lumpy. Lumpy. So, yeah, she was. That would make sense. And, and I also found out later, um, I was just reminded, she was also a honk on Far Out Space Nuts. Wow. Which... I, I think I think it's Patty. I think Patty. Patty has one of the, the uh, funniest lines I think ever. Carrie was in a movie called Under the Rainbow. Yes, which was, was oh, yeah. about the Munchkins making the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, uh, they were all. They, and it's based on a true story. They were all staying at the Culver Hotel across the street from the studio, and they made a shambles of it. And there is one scene, and Patty is among the Munchkins, and they go into an elevator, and um, uh, Pat McCormick, who was a, a comic and a writer and was about 6'5 and huge, like a football player, is in there. And, of course, <laughs> they all kind of come up to his waist, all the other people in the elevator. And uh, he gets into the elevator and wedges his way between them and turns around and looks at the guy the elevator operator and he says ballroom and Patty Maloney turns around and says, I'm sorry, am I crowding you? <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite moments. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, Itchy, who was the grandfather, yes, Itchy, was played by Paul Gale. 
That that I that somebody I don't know. Uh, he was on the Bay City Rollers meets Saturday Superstars. Uh, he was Horatio J. Hoodoo in uh, the World of Sid and Marty Croft. Huh. Uh, that was a TV show, or that was a, a theme park? Because um, they had a theme park in Atlanta called the World of Sid and Marty Croft. It was in, at Underground Atlanta, which was. Uh, a whole hmm. theme mall thing, and they had a theme park oh, there. And he may sounds, have played it, but he probably fun. it was probably a TV special. Basically, uh, rollers. Wow. Yeah. I did, he, I did he played he, with the basic, but not that one. He played uh, Horatio J. Hoodoo on the Bay City Rollers. On the Bay Well, they had yep. television. Ah, okay. yep. Well, I, uh, I I mean, I knew when we were shooting, but I didn't know. I, you know I, then, there's been no contact since then. <laughs> and then Mickey Morton played uh, Mala. The oh, that's the that's the wife, Mala. Yep. Uh, right. Again, was that a Mickey a man or is it a M I C? It's a man. It's a man. The man, Mickey. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I remember there was, that was a guy. <laughs> I remember that was a guy. Yeah, and I, I guess like, and I guess he had played he had played a gorilla on Wonder Woman. <laughs> well, who hasn't? <laughs> well, it's true. There's a union gorilla people from Wonder. Um, now I do have. Another listener asked the question, um, name's Aaron Rittmaster. Having seen the holiday special, there's only one question. Why? Well, I think we've answered that, dear. Yeah, well, it was good. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think, I think so. I think, really, if you haven't been paying attention. <laughs> there was a valid economic reason for it. <laughs> Other than that, I have no excuse. Uh, now, Sandy, uh, she asks, uh, and this goes to your time on Hollywood Squares. Huh? Were, were the responses to the guests canned or were they all ad-libbed they were both uh we we gave everybody at the beginning we gave everybody jokes that they could use and then we discovered that was kind of futile and we should only give the funny people jokes and so we did that and nobody knew the real answers to anything and a lot of the questions didn't have real answers anyway it was all just kind of <laughs> a, and if the contestants thought that the, the the stars had real answers they would agree with them every time because that's how the game was played so uh we had the, they had to know that the stars didn't know any uh the um and there were a lot of ad libs so it was an equal measure i mean we but we uh, we supplied them with stuff if they wanted to use it. Some of the funniest things happened from people who weren't supposed to be funny, who would just say something that was uh, that was on, off the cuff that was really great. So and then Derek yeah. and then Derek Brown asks, and I, and I think this is a movie that could have taken place during the Star Wars universe. Mm-hmm. Will there be another Ice Pirates? Oh, I I hope. Oh, oh, oh I, yeah. I so hope. Oh, I it's love been, Ice Pirates. It's been Forty years, nineteen eighty three, but. Uh, I'm available, and I, you know, I'm still famous from my head. <laughs> so uh, I would love so it, and, and it's one of those. It's, that's one of those pictures that uh, that uh, again that live in, in not infamy, but because it was kind of a hit, and the, and people get a kick out of it. But it was uh, uh, it did okay when it was released, and then it became a cable TV staple. Ted Turner loved it and put it on all of his stations, mm-hmm. and then and uh, Angelica Houston won the Oscar the year after and so they began showing anything with her in it and she'd made three pictures one of which was the ice pirates so they kept showing that again and because she was very hot at the time and um and it just kept going and when ron perlman was the beast on beauty yeah. and the beast they, then it came mm-hmm. back and they would show it and over and over and over uh, 
And uh, Angelica used to say to me, I can't get rid of that picture. I sit down for an interview and the first person says, tell me about the ice pirate. <laughs> <laughs> Here I have a body of work, and this is years later, you know, and all they want to know is about ice pirates. <laughs> So I said, well, yeah. you know, once an Amazon, always an Amazon. But it was, <laughs> uh, it was a great, I mean, I came in on that movie. I was doing a rewrite on the picture because, uh, um, because it, they had to bring the budget down. And because nobody understood, there, I mean, it had, it had so many holes in it. And uh, Paul Williams, the, the, the very short songwriter, Paul Williams. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Was who was Pat McCormick's partner in the Cannonball movies? That yep. so Paul Williams was going to play Weird Wendy and the the Emperor, and uh, and he walked out. He decided he had enough, and uh, so uh, they. I was in the office, and they said, "Why don't you play this part?" And so I said, "Fine, okay." And I became Weird <laughs> Wendy and the Evil Emperor, <laughs> and it's followed me around. And it's, it's perfectly fine. It's you know, I'm happy to be part of a semi legend. <laughs> like I said, that that's a movie that seems like it could have been taking place out in the outer outer rims of the Star Wars universe of, of the Star exactly right well yeah. You know, oh yeah. yeah I mean the funny part of it was we built all of those sets and everything was built on like a major a shoestring budget and we finished and they kept them standing and Mel Brooks used them for space balls which came in to the to, to the uh, soundstage after us and he just dressed them up differently but a lot of them were the exact same sets. wow <laughs> and we were on the, the famous uh, stage 30 at MGM, which was uh, the Emerald City and Munchkinland. And it was it had Esther Williams tank in, in it, her indoor tank, where they shot all of those underwater sequences. I mean, it's a huge, wow. the gigantic. It takes up one whole corner of the lot still there. I mean, Sony uses it for all kinds of stuff. Oh, wow. But it, it's kind of legendary. Well, I, I want to get back to Carrie and her song. How did her song actually come about for the song that she sings in the yeah which that's a very good question i, I think that i uh, may i may be able to play some of it for you i think that ken and mitzi wrote it i think that ken and mitzi welch wrote it like they wrote the song for b and uh, uh and she sang it but i don't think she didn't bring it in i don't think she brought it in but uh, have you ever heard the song anyplace else I've, I've only heard it on the Star Wars Holiday Special. And does it have a name? Yeah. Uh, Princess Leia's Life Day song is all I've well, ever known well, it as. There you go. It's probably um, been done in a lot of Miss America pads. <laughs> Quite possibly. <laughs> but I somehow missed. Sure, yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't write, and so I didn't watch. <laughs> Let me see. I wrote Miss USA in the pre-Trump era. Miss Universe, those were fun. But I never got to do Miss America. It was a very closed group that did Miss America. They clutched her to their breasts. <laughs> so, Ken, Derek, any other questions? Yeah, going going back to um, Hollywood Squares. I had a little mm-hmm. ring factor. Um, when you are actually in the squares, did you use pre-written st- uh, jokes or, or and how like how much was pre-written? How much did you come up with on the spot Didn't for I yourself? I just answered that. Yeah, we just did that one. I think, yeah, with the ad lib. Uh, I think you may have zoned out. Oh, when I thought you that was I thought you, World of Dance. Because <laughs> no, I thought I thought you I thought that was for in general. No, that was uh, as I said. We we gave everybody a bluff, which was an answer that could be the right answer, but wasn't. And we gave everybody a joke, uh, right. and we stopped but, giving them all jokes. 
continue to give no, them love. Sometimes right, but, the books were kind of funny. But I, but I mean you pers I mean just you personally. Yeah, how much did you use the written stuff and how much did you come up with on your own? Oh, I can't, yeah, that's uh, my question. You know, uh, well, I had terrific writers who were I was the head writer. I had terrific writers working under me and they would they would write great stuff. I would use it and some stuff and stuff I I would use my own. I don't know. I didn't have a percentage tally on it, but uh I, I certainly, you know, I I took things from all comers. <laughs> Not the first time. <laughs> <laughs> I used to love you on, on Hollywood Squares. That was, oh, that was one of my you. favorite my favorite Hollywood Squares periods was when you were on it. I me too. I had a great time. It was it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, we did it. We it, we only shot thirty six days a year. We would shoot a week's worth in a day. So we were, we had thirty six weeks of original stuff. Twelve weeks off. And uh, we'd come in in the morning and shoot three and then have lunch and a couple of glasses of wine and shoot two more. So <laughs> the Thursday, and we'd shoot them in sequence for the week. So the Thursday and Friday shows were a lot looser than the uh, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. But the audience, we discovered, was a lot looser on Thursday and Friday. Towards the end of the week, they were a lot, a lot, they were anxious for laughter. And so <laughs> we, would, we would discover that they were. And, and the afternoon audience uh, was also looser than the morning audience, which was, you know, bright with coffee. Now, with with game shows making a comeback, especially for the summer seasons, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and we know uh, the name game, or the match game, which... Match game, to tell the truth, press right. your luck is back. All, all on ABC. Uh, and yeah. I know the match game was borderline same writing style as um, <laughs> Hollywood Squares. Yeah. Could... Similar. Since Mash Game has made a comeback, could Hollywood, Holly, Hollywood as well, Hollywood Squares, um, Hollywood Squares, um, I'll tell you, the, could, I'll could tell it you the com- could it make a comeback in this day and age? I will tell you that it's never gone away. That's the first thing. Um, there is now a show on uh, VH1 called Hip Hop Squares, where which they recycle our old really? uh, jokes and questions, and rappers do them because they're so rappers are so funny. Hmm. And it's been on for a, for a few years. It was on. It was off. MTV started it. Then they moved it to MTV Two, and then now hmm. finally VH1 has it. And uh, I'm not sure when it's on anymore, but uh, they keep recycling it. Uh, so that's one thing. And the other thing is that all of those other shows, to tell the truth, and a match game, and uh, press your luck, and uh, uh, there was I've got a secret, and what's my line? Whenever they've rebooted them, they have failed. This is the first time they've worked. So for a lot of people, they're like discovering. They tried to do match game. I was on a match game reboot that Ricky Lake hosted for CBS. Okay. It didn't make it. And uh, huh. they, they uh, Hollywood Squares has never failed. It's never, it's, it's, it's been around. Those shows came and went. And Hollywood Squares was on 14 years the first time on NBC. Then it was on five years in syndication in the 80s. And then we did six years, in the 90s into into the aughts. So um, it's already, it's so, it's so well known. I think that the reason they don't bring it back is because they think it's kind of like a cliche, but nothing is uh, impossible. You know, nothing is out of the realm. I wouldn't be at all surprised. I think that the rights are tied up. And I mean, I think that the people who have the original rights for the first version, the, the one that was eventually the a vehicle for Paul Lynn um, with Peter Marshall hosting, uh, yeah. they gave, they, they have yeah. the rights which they sold to, um, hip to MTV. And I think that there's probably a rights problem for anybody who wants to revive it again. Okay. And, and you know, uh, our version of it has no position in any of that. 
because mm. the, it's all reverts to the original source material. So that's why, you know, if, if it comes back, it's because they've cleared all those things up and they really want it to come back. But who knows? So do you personally have a favorite host of the Hollywood Squares? Well, you know, it was Tom Bergeron was the one that we worked with. And sure, that, that sure. Was, but it was our but, idea, actually, Whoopi and mine, idea if we were on... Uh, um, we were both happened to be on, he had a talk show uh, on Fox called Fox After Breakfast. Yeah. Him and a sock puppet. And uh, we, Whoopi and I were both guests at separate times on the thing. And uh, when I wound up being uh, the head writer and she wound up being the center square and they were looking for a host, we both suggested Tom Bergeron because, uh, mm. because uh, we thought he was fabulous. And he was in the running to be the host of Good Morning America. And uh, he didn't get it <laughs> and so suddenly he was available and so we they snatched uh and and he's my favorite i mean you know john davidson was cute and you know all that and, yeah uh, i like john davidson and peter i uh i run into peter at various things out here and uh and we had them all we had them on hollywood squares we had a hollywood squares uh, uh original cast week on hollywood squares with peter I and that. i forget who else was on i mean peter was on joan was on because she was the second version of it but she was also on the first one i can't re- really i can't remember who was on it but i do remember peter because he was uh because we had special stuff for him to do with tom he came out of the square and hosted and asked questions and he, yeah. i i would like to know more um it's a it's another one of my favorite projects of yours uh along with the star wars holiday special comic relief yeah well i did Ooh. 12 of them and uh, yeah. um it was it was fabulous i mean it, it happened because of uh ronald reagan who uh changed the welfare system and put a lot of mentally ill people on the street who had been in uh, various facilities and as a result we had a tremendous homeless problem and it, it was made worse by uh you know, uh, by recession and things like that and put more people on the street and the government wasn't doing anything about it. And so uh, the comics decided to get together and do something about, about the homeless. Uh, so uh, it be, and HBO, which was looking to uh, do something in the give back wor- world, right. you know, like the civic responsibility world was, was very into it. Chris Albrecht, who was running the, the network uh, at the time, was uh, a guy who had been in management that had had a bunch of comics under his wing. So uh, we did that, and it was, and it was it was huge. And then over the years, you know, like anything else, uh, a, a lot of charity things began happening, going big time. There were lots of uh, AIDS charities once once people kicked right. in. Uh, there were a lot of other things, and and people got political, and there uh, and as a result, the, I mean, the homeless, like a lot of charities, like you have to keep reminding them that the, that the the problem is still around because people find some new thing that. They they're interested right. in, or uh, they or they think that somehow it's all been taken care of. So the last mm. year we did, I mean, it was diminishing returns each time. And uh, the last one we did was after Katrina, and we did it in uh, L.A. and New Orleans simultaneously. Right. And it was specifically to raise money for Katrina victims. It was like hurricane relief, which was uh, organized by Gloria Stefan in Miami when uh, the, the whatever the big hurricane. Andrew, was. yeah, Andrew. That's, yeah. So it was, that was uh, her and uh, John's 
John Cicada and um, the Bee Gees and Miami people. Right. So, uh, but it was, uh, I had a great time. I, I, I mean, I was writing, we would write sketches for the hosts, things for them to do. And then there was some serious writers who were writing the pleas. You know, we'd have movie stars would come in and they would do the actual pitch for the charity. And then comics would come out and do it. And I, so, I, w- I wish it was still around. I, I loved it. Yeah, yeah, well, they keep talking about coming back at some other thing. I was going to say, maybe I should make it come back. Well, yeah. as Whoopi, Whoopi said, they should do it, but they should get younger comics. Yeah. I mean, to do it, if yeah, they can right, find yeah. people who, who have who have that interest and have that skill. Because, you know, Whoopi and Robin and, uh, and Billy are... Uh, uh, the generation of the last of the vaudevillians, right? You know, who grew up watching, you know, the Jonathan Winters right. and the Red Skeltons and the Carol Burnetts and and all of that, and they um, and and they'll go out there and and do that. They'll sell that kind of stuff. There aren't many people around who will yeah. do that. Yeah, and I, who are or not are not not you know, kids anymore. They're not twenty years old. So yeah, that's like a dying breed of entertainer in general. That and yeah. um, the the ones I call like the all around entertainers, the guys that were able to do the singing and dancing and acting and do all of it well. There's yeah. very few that are left that can actually do all of it. Um, yeah. The only one that I can think of that comes to mind really is like a Harry Connick Jr. could do all of it still. Yeah. But other yeah. than that, those guys are gone. You, everybody focuses on one thing they do well and stay on that. Yep. And and that's because of, that's all that's required, basically. I mean, if you, you can create an image for yourself and do that one thing and do really well, and why would you want to try and do something else? Or I mean, as uh, even years ago, I worked with David Bowie, and uh, he always was saying, I want to be funny. I would I want to try dialogue on it. I said, you know, you're in a you're in a, a football stadium, and it you know you're doing everything is big, and you're going to bring it down to very small. That'll work if you're bringing if it's music, you're bringing down very small or movement. But actual comedy in words, it's hard to do at, at Yankee Stadium. Uh, and since people went for that, that was the ultimate goal. I mean, to be even even the comics, you know, who play Madison Square Garden. I mean, the, the big theatrical comics like Eddie Murphy and, uh, and uh, Dane Cook, who was a you know, yeah. they were all uh, they all do like a show, and they're and they're loud and all that kind of stuff. And that that's what they do. They don't uh, they don't suddenly break into song or do anything and the thing they weren't they didn't come up in the system where you had to have all of that skill mm-hmm. it was vaudeville then it was radio then it was television and uh now you can pretty much focus on what you want to project and and not have to worry about anything else what's been your up to this point uh what's been the most memorable moment you've had on any project <laughs> Oh my God! Well, I suppose it was a wow, tough one. Go back to the Oscars when uh, when Billy was hosting and Jack Palance did the one arm push ups, and uh, and then we got to throw the script out oh, yeah. jokes for the evening. So as an experience, that was that was the highlight. But uh, I've been working with Bette Midler since the Jurassic period, and just being a part <laughs> of her of uh, and of her career uh having that collaboration for going on for you know five decades is uh that's been exciting and then when i you know did broadway when i started in hairspray on broadway that was pretty thrilling uh so it's hard to, to narrow it down to one but hey, and the, being on Hollywood was hysterical because uh suddenly i was like i was on tv every night so for a minute there i was a household name i think you still are uh, well there you go thank you here i was a simple gay icon so um i guess <laughs> to bring it back full circle a little bit with 
the holiday special. Um, was there a moment on the show that you're like, I can't believe we're getting away with this particular moment? Um, uh, no, because uh, uh, <laughs> no, because I never believed we were getting away with anything. I mean, we would say, "Do you? Can you believe this? Is this gonna? Is this gonna cut to any? Is this gonna be anything? Is this gonna be some sort of turd in the punch bowl?" I mean, we had no idea. <laughs> I mean, it was, and, and we could we just kept saying, this is like, this is just so weird. I mean, and, you know, let's have another a hit off the blunt because, because then your mood would match what was going on. And uh, I never thought that. But I have had those kinds of moments. I, I will tell you, uh, one, uh, when I was doing Donnie and Marie, I wrote all the Donnie Marie shows. Marie turned 18, and we wanted her to appear more adult. They wanted it. We, well, we all felt that she had to, like, you know, be more adult. And um, uh, and so we were looking for a song, that, you know, to sort of make fun of her image. We couldn't do Look at Me, I'm Sandra D because other people were doing it. Uh, so we were looking and looking, and at the time... Uh, I was, I'm still very friendly with Michael Feinstein. And Michael Feinstein at the time was working for Ira Gershwin, the great songwriter. Right. And, right. Uh, um, and I was, uh, I was over there talking to him and to Ira and I was telling him, you know, we're looking for something. And Ira said, Oh, I, I know a song that would be great. And he pulled out a song called treat me rough, which he and his brother, George Gershwin wrote for a show called girl crazy. And, uh, was, uh, sung in the movie by Mickey Rooney uh, and a, a whole bunch of gorgeous girls. And in the song, he's going treat me rough, must my hair slap me around. I don't care. And I thought this was, I, Ira thought this would be funny for Marie to be doing with a whole bunch of, of muscle men, you know, like like Jane Russell or Mae West. And it would certainly let everybody know that she was an adult now. And um, uh, so I said, terrific. And I went uh, to the Osmond. The Osmond family ran the thing, and it was kind of like a Mormon exercise. There were so many things that they wouldn't do. Mm -hmm. And they said, they said, no, she can't do that. Can't do that. And I went back to Ira and I said, uh, um, she won't do it. And he said, what, what, what's it they like? And I said, well, there's this lyric, whatever it was. And he said, I'll change it. I said, you're what? You're, I, I thought Ira Gershman is going to rewrite this song for Marie Osmond. And I thought, my God, I have power. So I went back and, I, and with the new version. And I said, Ira Gershman. They said, no, no. I said, I, perhaps you didn't hear me. Ira Gershwin, the Ira Gershwin, Corgi and Bess, that Ira Gershwin has rewritten this song. For her. I mean, the publicity alone at the time yeah. was, would have been, no, no, can't possibly. So I had to go back to him. Yeah, and, really? I mean, well, you know, I've been turned down by Big Earth, and <laughs> I'm sure he had. <laughs> so we didn't do that. And, uh, and instead, I brought her a song that my friends, Melissa Manchester and Carol Bear Sager, had just written called Coming from the Rain. And it was uh, a ballad that Melissa was going to sing. And, I, and she let, said, well, if Marie wants to sing it, I'd love to hear to have her sing it. And, and, and it's about, uh, so I sent it to them, I played it for them, and they uh, said, no, no, you see, it's about a woman who's taking back her husband after he has had an affair. Where they got this, I don't I mean, you know, it was about somebody saying, I, uh, I forgive you for whatever you've done. Come in from the rain, don't make yourself miserable. It's a beautiful lyric, and, and it's a fabulous song with the bill. And uh, they said, no, no, she can't possibly do that. So then I went to Elton John. And I got him to give me, don't let the sun go down on me. And I brought that and they loved Elton John. 
They thought, bad. Oh, Elton John, he's so wonderful. He's so happy. And so Marie Osmond got to sing, don't let the sun go down on me. And I was in the uh, control booth with the censor from the network. And she looked at me and she said, Roy, you pulled one over on them, didn't you? <laughs> Someone's going down on Marie. It's wonderful. So, well, she's pretty grown up now. She's getting gone down on, on network television. So that was one of those moments where I can't believe we're getting away with it. And the Mormons were, they were, the, the family was just, oh, it's lovely. <laughs> Felton. Of course, that was before he came out. At that, at, that They might not have had the same opinion of him. <laughs> Now, with the Dolly Marie show, this is the second yes. time you got to dabble with Star Wars when when they did. Yes, the, they they were. So how did uh-huh. so how did? Oh right! Obviously, Star Wars was the big thing. How did they go about bringing Star Wars into? into well, their- I think they only, we only had the uh, the character the characters right. We had uh, yeah, Chewie and. And Tony yeah. Daniels and, and um, um, Kenny. Kenny, yeah. I think we just had them, and there was a big like finale with with Marie as Leia and Donnie as, uh, as uh, Luke, and uh, uh, I think it was Chris Christopher. Darth Vader. No, uh, I think so. And I think it was been Darth. I want to say uh, Chris Christopherson as, as Solo. Oh, that could have. Been. Uh, he was probably uh, Han Solo. Yeah, because he was a guest on the show. I remember it now. So. That was, uh, but that was, I think, just a big, you know, we always did a big finale that was right. a theme and something, and sometimes it was a, a, a musicalized version of a, a current movie. So I think that was what that was. But it wasn't anything that involved, you know, it was it was parody, and um, it, it, fell, it fell under parody. It was not... Uh, it was not a Star Wars sanctioned thing. Right. Uh, although it was, I mean, obviously George had to sign off on it. But at that point, I think he recognized that he was uh, promoting. And uh, okay. it was it was going to be, it would be harmless. And it, it wasn't going to be a Star Wars brand enterprise. Uh, it was the, the right. Donnie and Marie brand. How much trouble could he get into with the Donnie and Marie brand? True. You know? Now, what, what was more um, daunting to face? The rejection from George about the show or anything from the censors for uh, the Star Wars holiday special. I don't remember the censors. Uh, the CBS censors were different than the the ABC censor was. Uh, who I knew very, I knew the CBS censor too, but they they seemed to be a little bit more lenient. And I don't think there was anything on the show that they that they had to censor. I think we were uh, we we knew we were writing in a family mode for the thing. So I don't think anything. Uh, it wasn't like we weren't trying to get away with anything terribly adult. Uh, you know, I mean, that would that would push the line. And the censors in those days were mostly about uh, brands. I mean, you couldn't Xerox something. You had to photocopy it. Uh, you couldn't have a Coke. You had to have a, a, a soda. Uh, you couldn't go into a, a jacuzzi. You had to go into a hot tub. So I would always write a jacuzzi joke in just because I like the word jacuzzi. And they said, well, you can't use jacuzzi. <laughs> I'd say, okay, we're going into the hot tub from Coos Bay, Oregon, ladies and gentlemen. We're in the hot <laughs> because you know, I mean, nobody tried anything that that weird. And and when I when I think about it now, it was it was also quaint because now you turn on anything. I mean, uh, I remember the pilot of Two Broke Girls. I went to watch when they. Oh yeah. You know, and they had a joke, a joke with the one waitress is on the floor and the other waitress is banging the dishwasher, um, a man, not a machine, in, in the kitchen. Yep. And, uh, yep. and, um, and, and the, the, uh, and the one waitress on the floor, the tablecloths are all, where's our waitress? And off camera, you hear in the kitchen. 
that, you know, you hear the sounds of people having sex. And uh, the, the first girl turns to them and says, she's coming and walks away. Now, that was a joke <laughs> you would never be able to get past the network censor in yep. 1977. Yep. But it's mild now, I mean, mm, yeah. for what the networks were doing, because they had to catch up to cable, basically. They had to catch up to things that were not sponsor provided. So there's nobody, none of the, no advertisers who can get mad at you. Right, right. Uh, anyway, Ken, Derek, any final questions? Anybody else? I have, to, I have to go now because they've got to feed things. <laughs> yeah, I think we've covered a lot of it already. This is awesome. Thank you for coming yeah. on. Yes, yeah, thank you on. so much. Where, where can people Where can people find you online? WeGotBruce.com. Is, uh, uh, they always know where I am. Okay. And uh, I'm writing a book actually about, about these television shows I've written. So forgive oh, me if cool. you read the book and you hear any cool. of this repeated. Oh, I'll, we'll have when, flashbacks when to this episode. But I'll come, back when, I'll come back the moment. The moment I have so many to plug. Well, baby. Derek and I will oh, bring I you back on to, uh, to We Be Geeks, our other show that we do. We Be Geeks. Oh, good. So, all right. Well, thank um, you again for coming on. Uh, thank you. It was Welcome, a blast. Thank you for Zooming with me. Oh, it was our pleasure. Yeah, you know, with the Zoom experience. And, uh, <laughs> all right. Okay. So, I will, uh, I'll see you when they reopen Animal Kingdom and I can visit my relatives. <laughs> that works too. So, thank you again and thank you. Have a good night. You too. Give the evacuation code signal. I can hold it. Pull up! No, I'm all right. I have placed information vital to the survival of the rebellion into the memory systems of this R2 unit. I've lost R2. That doesn't sound too hard.